This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something to note. All myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining. Because mythology comes from oral tradition, there's a wide variety across sources. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. Odysseus's feet ached. He wished that Princess Nausicaa had stayed by his side, for he had grown tired of solitude. Though he had spent the last few years as a captive of the goddess Calypso, he had longed for a regular mortal peer to converse with. Of course, more than that, he longed to finally return to Ithaca, his home which he had not been to in nearly 20 years. After years of wandering, his goal finally seemed to be within his grasp. He would need the help of the Phaeacian king and queen to get what he wanted. And that meant not sticking out like a stranger. Athena cast a mist on Odysseus, one that would make him appear more appealing to outsiders. This was good, as the Phaeacians were patrons of Poseidon, the very god whose wrath and storms had stranded Odysseus on the island in the first place. Odysseus knew he would have to trust in his own cunning if he ever wanted to return home again. The Phaeacians would help him. He would make sure of it. Welcome to Mythology, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythology for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Mythology in the search bar. This is our second episode on the ancient Greek epic, Homer's The Odyssey. Last week, we discussed the tale of Odysseus's long-delayed departure from Calypso's island and Poseidon's frightful storm, which destroyed Odysseus's raft, stranding him on the island of Scoria. This week, 
we'll discuss the section of the Odyssey that covers Odysseus's time on the island as a guest of the Phaeacian king and queen Alcinous and Arete. Despite his attempts to keep his identity secret, Odysseus eventually begins to tell the tale of how he came to be stranded on Calypso's island and what happened to the men who set out with him from Troy. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Odysseus arrived at the palace after hours of walking. As he passed through the gates, he found a large crowd of Phaeacians were in the middle of a great festival to honor Poseidon, the very god who was behind Odysseus's suffering. But the mist Athena had cast on him worked, and the locals paid little mind to the strange man who walked among them. Odysseus was unbothered as he made his way to the palace, where he found Alcinous, the king, and his wife, Arete. The king and queen welcomed the stranger before them, though something about him gave Queen Arete pause. I am a traveler, stranded here by the cruel winds of fate. I offer myself before you in a preemptive show of gratitude for your hospitality. I have suffered for many long years and yearned for the company of fellow men. Come, tell us your name and how you came to be here. My name is not worth speaking in the presence of one as regal as yourself. I am no one of note, fathered by no one of note. As to your second question, I came here by sea, from the island of the goddess Calypso, where I've spent these past seven winters. Calypso is a goddess, and the gods are known to take the forms of unassuming mortals. You won't tell us your name, but you're clearly someone of note. Tell us, how are we to believe that you're not a god in disguise? Trust me, I am no god. I am just a man of little consequence. Odysseus walked with Arete and Alcinous to the palace, and he extolled the beauty of their island kingdom as he described in detail the woods and fauna he'd gazed upon as he walked in solitude through the forest. But when they arrived... Arete suddenly became aware of what was bothering her. She remembered what she recognized about the man, his garb. She knew the clothes that he wore, for it was identical to the garb that she had gifted her daughter, Nausicaa, just a few weeks earlier. Before we go any further, I hope you have an explanation for what you're wearing. Why, this wrap has been mine for, well, longer than I can remember. You lie. That's my daughter's garment. I'm curious how you came by it, given that you arrived at this palace alone. You see much, wise queen. Indeed, your daughter gave me these clothes. Speak then, as to why you arrived at this palace alone. As a princess, she should have escorted you if you were any guest worth having. Do not worry, good queen. Your daughter has not dishonored your house. She offered to escort me to this palace, as you say she should have, but I was so taken by the natural beauty of this island kingdom that I resolved to come alone, so I could better appreciate it as a visitor should. 
His bold honesty moved the queen, and she discussed quietly with her husband her belief that Odysseus was to be trusted and that they should extend to him every courtesy. So the king and queen decreed that a feast would be held in Odysseus's honor the next day. Odysseus bathed once more, then rested, and let the aches of his long journey fade away. Before he drifted off to sleep, he offered a prayer to the gods that his hosts would be kind and help him return home. Odysseus awoke alert and more relaxed than he had in years. He got dressed and then presented himself at the palace for the gathering. The Phaeacians had turned out in full. Athena, back from her travels, had moved among the common folk of the island and, in various disguises, made it clear that they shouldn't miss the gathering. Thus, all were present when Odysseus appeared before Arete and Alcinous. The king and queen repeated their urge for Odysseus to marry their daughter, though, naturally, they expressed the desire to know his name. Once again, Odysseus played coy, acting as though he was no one worth knowing. Even though he still wouldn't tell them who he was, Alcinous and Arete felt that they could trust this man who had come so inauspiciously to their shores. You have proven yourself to be both wise and kind, good stranger. We do not know your story, but you clearly have the favor of the gods. I have suffered enough in this life to question whether that's true. We will give you a ship, men, supplies, everything you need to get home, though you still have not told us where that is. An unassuming rock, my queen. Nowhere of consequence. Well... Though you claim to be an unimportant man, we shall honor your presence nonetheless with a feast and games. And so they dined and drank and cheered and laughed, stopping their din only when Demodocus, a blind bard, began to pluck at his lyre and sing the songs of the Greek heroes. The great hall fell silent as the bards sang of the feud between Odysseus and Achilles on the fields of the Trojan War. He recounted the story to his audience of how the rash, fiery Achilles had often butted heads with the wise, level-headed Odysseus. The two legendary heroes fought for the same sides, but they spent much of the ten years of the war at each other's throats. Odysseus found himself crying at the tale. Now, years later, with Achilles long dead, Odysseus felt nothing but sadness when he thought of how he and the great hero had fought. What a waste. Alcinous noticed this and waved that the bard should stop. It wouldn't be much of a feast if the guest of honor was crying through all of it. They moved on to games and cheered for all manner of sports. Men boxed, they wrestled, they threw javelins and discuses for the crowd's amusement. Odysseus seemed to enjoy the show up until Laodamus, one of the competitors, signaled him out and challenged him. Odysseus brushed the challenge off, playing the role of a tired wanderer. He politely expressed his disinterest in competing, but Laodamus continued to push him, riling up the crowd of competitors, all who chanted taunts at Odysseus, 
urging him to show the crowd what he was made of. Finally, Enough! I may be tired and past my prime, but I am not going to sit here while some lad who hasn't lived a fifth of the life I have questions my ability. Your confidence is admirable, but be warned, friend. Laodamus is one of our strongest, and it would not do well to embarrass the guest of honor at his own feast. But Odysseus had already made up his mind. He lifted the discus and with a mighty twirl, hurled it far beyond where Laodamus had landed his own. Odysseus pounded his chest and roared to the competitors, challenging them to go against him in any sport and stating that he would best him. The challengers grew rowdy at the challenge. Who was this outsider who would not even give his name to cast doubt upon their own manliness? All of the men in the room grew more and more restless until the queen stood abruptly and raised her hand. Be silent, all. Stranger, you are not wrong to feel anger, but please sit, eat, and we shall resume the songs and calm ourselves. So Odysseus sat and they continued to feast. Demodocus sang a new song, one of the fraught relationships between the gods Ares and Aphrodite. The tale of Aphrodite's infidelity with Ares made Odysseus feel great shame, for during his captivity he had succumbed to Calypso's wiles and taken her as a lover. Though he longed to once again see his wife, Penelope, he knew he may never be able to face her and feel that he was an honorable man. Eventually, he could take no more of it, and he begged Demodocus to stop. He asked for a different song, the Song of the Trojan War. Demodocus obliged and sang the tale, though nobody present could know that he was singing about the very man who sat at their table. The bard sang of the great Odysseus and his crafty ploy to build a wooden horse to smuggle the Greeks into the city. For many in the hall, this was their favorite part of the story. For Odysseus, though, it was just another trigger for his grief. The song drew him to think of all the lives that had been senselessly lost in the war. During all of this, Arete and her subjects had watched Odysseus closely, keeping mind of his reactions. Finally, she could wait no longer. You must have traveled far and suffered much in your years away from home, wherever that is. The stories that our bard sings clearly stir sadness in you. What stories would you tell? Odysseus, a man who had lived enough to fill the lives of a dozen men, considered the question and thought about which tale he would share to entertain his hosts. I have hidden my name too long. And you have been generous as a host. I'm sure some of you may suspect it now, but I am called Odysseus. I hail from the island of Ithaca, though I have not set foot on my homeland in close to two decades. Gather round. I shall tell you my story, for I set out from Troy with twelve ships of good, honest men. And I am the only one who lived to tell their tale.
Next, Odysseus sings the song of his long years of travel and finally reveals what happened to him after the Trojan War. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the Odyssey. After years stranded on an island as Calypso's captive, the Greek hero Odysseus had finally found some measure of comfort as the guests of the Phaeacians. They'd fed him and entertained him and even respected his wishes to keep his identity a secret. But after an emotional reaction to the bard Demodocus retelling the tales of the Trojan War, Odysseus broke down and revealed himself to his hosts. Then he began to tell the story of his adventures after he and his men left Troy, and how he came to be stranded alone on Calypso's island. The sacking of Troy was a legendary and terrible event to behold. Days turned to nights, turned back into days, as the Greek troops released ten years of pent-up frustrations on the unarmed Trojan citizens. When Troy was burnt to cinders, and its riches were divided up, and its people slaughtered or enslaved, the Greek troops finally turned their weary eyes toward home. After waiting on the beaches of Troy, while Agamemnon made grand sacrifices to the gods so that they may bless his return journey, Odysseus set off for home with twelve full ships of men. These ships were nearly overloaded with treasure from the sacked city of Troy, but it would seem Odysseus and his men were not content with their bounty. When they first set out, the winds drove them to the populated island of Sicanes and the city of Ismaros. On Odysseus's orders, his soldiers sacked the city, killing the men and taking their wives and treasures for themselves. This was a traditional practice whenever a leader of Odysseus's reputation landed on an unfamiliar or unfriendly civilization. The Ithacans had reaped plenty of riches from Troy, but that score had been a small fraction, split among all the other Greek tribes. Here was a place that they could loot all for themselves. It was the first of many ill decisions that would lead Odysseus to his not entirely unearned fate. After his men gorged themselves on the spoils of their conquest, Odysseus urged them to return to their ships so that they could resume their journey. But the men, tired from long years of war and sated on their own bloodlust, would not leave. They were content to rest in the houses they had stolen and take advantage of their winnings. And so, when reinforcements from the neighboring city arrived, the Ithacans were unprepared for the battle. Odysseus and his men fled to their ships, though a number of men were killed during the retreat. They tried to get back on course, but Zeus was angry at them for their greed and cruelty. 
he set upon them winds so violent that all twelve ships had to bring down their masts so as not to tear them. They drifted aimlessly for days before the weather cleared, and when they finally got back on course, they were in need of supplies. They docked at the nearest island, which turned out to be that of the Lotus Eaters. There they restocked on water and provisions, but some of Odysseus's men were called further inland by the island's natives. They feasted on the lotus, and when Odysseus went to retrieve them, his men would not leave. Soon, most of them were afflicted by the addictive properties of the island's colorful fruit. It made them forget all of their wants. It made them forget everything except their desire to eat more fruit. It was only after Odysseus dragged each man back to the ship and bound them to the masts that he was able to get everyone off the island. The Ithacans had suffered two wayward misadventures already and assumed that the worst was behind them. They were wrong. The ship next landed ashore the lush green island of the Cyclopes. Though these one-eyed behemoths were fierce, Odysseus and his men were not fearful. Everyone knew that the Cyclopes were not the brightest of creatures. The men rested and feasted on the supplies they had stored from the island of the Lotus Eaters. And then, in the dead of night, they decided to go exploring. They came across a cave that was loaded with goods, cheese and meat and wine and sheep, plump and ready for slaughter. They couldn't help themselves and began to drink the wine and eat the food. They were so caught up in their sudden feast that none of them noticed the cave's angry inhabitant until it was too late. Who's there? Get away from my stores before I crush you beneath my feet. Away, I said. I will devour you. Polyphemus, the massive cyclops, emerged from the darkness of the cave wielding a great club. He stood three times as tall as any of Odysseus's men, with feet like tree trunks that would crush any of them beneath his weight. He let out a mighty, terrifying roar as he lumbered toward the Ithacans. Run, men! Back to the ship! But none of Odysseus's men were fast enough to escape. Polyphemus stepped over the fleeing men and pushed a massive boulder in front of the entrance. The Ithacans were now trapped in the cave with the angry monster who stood tall over each of them. <laughs> Do not be so quick to run, little friends. You've already entered my home, drank my wine, and eaten my food. It would be quite rude of you not to allow me to play the role of a proper host. Now, tell me, who are you? We are from Troy, though we are all Greek men. We have been waylaid on our journey home and now find ourselves on this island. Zeus himself guides our path, and all who fear the god of thunder's wrath would do well not to hinder us. Mm. Zeus, you say? And with that, the Cyclops grabbed two of Odysseus's men and devoured them whole. 
We, Cyclops, do not fear Zeus, for we are the seed of Poseidon, and he allows us our freedom on this island. You have invaded my home, and now you shall stay here until I get hungry again. Odysseus found himself overcome with great rage. His hand neared his sword as he prepared to strike the beast down. But he stopped himself as he turned to look at the great boulder. Only Polyphemus had the strength to move it. They were trapped unless Odysseus could come up with another plan. You might at least tell me your name, now that your life is forfeit. No man is my name. Ha! No man! Well, that's a good one. Well, I suppose your name doesn't really matter, does it? You'll taste just as delicious regardless of whether I know your real name or not. Polyphemus then went to sleep, leaving Odysseus and his men to contemplate their fates. None of them slept that night as they were all paralyzed with fear for what the Cyclops would do to them next. The next day, Polyphemus awoke and prepared to leave the cave so that his sheep could graze in the outside field. He barked an order at his captives. Against that wall, all of you, I'm heading out. If any of you try to make a break for it, I'll stomp on you. Polyphemus moved the boulder to let his sheep out to graze. He was careful to push it back, blocking all of the men in while he was gone. Odysseus knew that if they sat idle, they would all be eaten. They would need to find a way to weaken the Cyclops without killing him outright so that he could still move the boulder to let them escape. While the Cyclops was out grazing, he and his men scoured the cave and eventually came across a massive wooden staff the size of a ship's mast. From the wood, they carved a long pole, sharpening it to a point. And then they waited. Polyphemus returned that night and was quick to push the boulder back over the cave's entrance. I have returned, and my appetite is mighty. Tell me, should I pick who to eat, or will one among you be brave enough to sacrifice himself? You may eat me first, dreaded Cyclops, but I have a request. Drink with me, for I confess I've never tasted wine as sweet as what you have in this cave. And I'm sure you know that food tastes better after you've allowed wine to soften your senses. <laughs> so Odysseus and Polyphemus drank heartily. Whenever the Cyclops' bowl was empty, Odysseus was sure to fill it again. After three whole bowlfuls of wine, Polyphemus was roaring drunk and vulnerable. He sat back, too drunk to stand, and let out a mighty belch. Oh, come to me, no man. Oh, you are right. The cave spins and my belly is full of wine. I long for sustenance. Now! On that, the men sprang to action. They stuck the sharp end of the spear they had fastened into the roaring fire. 
Odysseus took the weapon and with a mighty thrust plunged its burning point deep into the Cyclops' eye, blinding him. Polyphemus' screams were so anguished that the other Cyclopes heard him and came to his cave out of concern. But when they called in to see what was the matter, Polyphemus responded, No man is killing me! No man is killing me, is what they heard, and so the other Cyclopes left Polyphemus to his own devices, and when the pain had finally burned out, Polyphemus slept, for despite his injury, he was still quite drunk. The hard part is over now. We just need to wait. Everyone, pick a sheep and be at the ready. Polyphemus woke the next day and struggled to find the cave's entrance. Though he was blinded, he was still massive and stronger than any of his Greek captives. I may be blind, but my hearing is excellent. If I hear any of you step foot near the cave entrance when I push this boulder, I'll stomp on you. You have my word. None of us will walk near you. So Polyphemus pushed the boulder and exposed the cave's exit. He whistled for his sheep and listened keenly for the sound of footsteps. He heard none. Convinced that Odysseus had kept his word, the Cyclops pushed the boulder back in front of the cave entrance and then stumbled on after his sheep. It was only then that he heard the shouts and rushed steps of the Greeks, for they had each grabbed onto the underside of a sheep's belly and been carried out of the cave. No! Blind Polyphemus heard the men shout as they boarded their ships and sailed off. Odysseus, overwhelmed with ego at his own cleverness, turned to the bow and called back to the Cyclops. Listen now, Cyclops. If any man comes to you, and asks how you came to be blinded. Tell them it was I, Odysseus, son of Laertes, who did the deed. In a rage, Polyphemus scrambled for a boulder, which he blindly tossed after Odysseus. Blind as he was, the Cyclops missed his target and heard it splash in the water far off in the distance. Enraged and crying from his ruined eye, Polyphemus fell to his knees. Father, Poseidon, I beg you to curse Odysseus. Ensure that he becomes as miserable as he made me, for in my shame, I feel lost. And though he did not show it, Poseidon heard the words of the Cyclops and set about concocting ways to make Odysseus suffer. The great god of the sea made it his mission to punish Odysseus. It would be the work of Poseidon that would plague Odysseus in the coming years, preventing him from reaching the home he so longingly missed. Despite all they had been through, the Ithacans were still robust and full of hope that they would soon reach the shores of their home. But, as would soon become quite clear, the gods had other plans. 
The wind picked up under the sails after they departed the land of the Cyclopes. The next spot of habitable land turned out to be Aeolia, an island that floated above the sea, suspended by the winds themselves. This was the home of Aeolus, the immortal ruler of all winds. The crew of men was brought up to the island by Aeolus's children and taken to its hall, where the wind ruler waited for them. Come in, come in. You are welcome in my halls. You are much more gracious a host than the last one we met. Aeolus was indeed gracious. As an immortal with a purpose bestowed on him by the gods, he took his responsibilities as a host rather seriously. Generous as he was, he opened his islands to the Ithacans and provided them with anything they asked for. For a month, he supplied them with food, drink, and pillows upon which to rest. And when it was time for his guests to move on, Aeolus gave Odysseus something more precious than all of that. What is this? A hide pouch given to me by Zeus himself when I was first made the ruler of the winds. This pouch holds the very power of the winds in it, and you can use it to propel your way home. Hopefully you won't get stuck on any more islands. And so Odysseus and his men boarded their ships. They all spotted the pouch around his neck. They pressed him to say what it was, but Odysseus did not answer and instead ordered them to work. When they were all distracted with their duties, he used the wind in the pouch to conjure a mighty breeze to take them all the way home. The men grumbled over the next few days of the journey. They had each spent a month in Aeolus's palace. They knew the kind of wealth the man possessed. The rumor quickly spread among them that Odysseus was hiding some treasure in the pouch that he did not want to share. After a few days, they could actually see Ithaca on the horizon. After ten years of war and a long, perilous journey, the Ithacans had made it home. But Odysseus, fatigued as he was, decided to rest on this final leg of the journey and soon fell into a deep sleep. The pouch was unguarded. The men could not contain their curiosity or their greed. They wanted to at least know what was in the pouch so they could see if Odysseus really was cheating them out of something precious. They went to him and took the pouch. When they opened it, they released all of the winds inside, and the entire fleet found itself caught in a violent storm. When the winds had settled, they found that they had pushed all the way back to where they started, at Aeolus's island. And when they tried to dock, they found the Lord of Winds waving them away. Be gone! You are no longer welcome here. I gave you the gift of the winds, and yet somehow you returned. This must be the work of the gods, and I will not risk their wrath by helping you. Odysseus pleaded from his ship for Aeolus to take them back under his protection, but the old man was having none of it. And so the Ithacans rowed on. 
They had lost all of the winds from Odysseus's pouch, and since Aeolus had refused to help them, they were effectively dead in the water and could only rely on their oars to propel themselves onward. The mood was dour among the men. Odysseus tried to urge them to look on the bright side. At least they still had all twelve of their ships, though that would not be the case for long. The small Ithacan fleet sailed on for six more days until they arrived at Lamos, home of the giants known as the Lestragonians. At last, land. We can dock here and find food, but be careful. We don't want a repeat of what happened with the Cyclops. Odysseus wisely sent out a small group of men to scout the island for potential supplies and intelligence on the locals. His men soon came across a group of the giant Lestragonians, who proved to be immediately hostile. A battle call resounded across the island, and the Lestragonians turned out in droves, ready to devour the trespassers. The men fled back to Odysseus and the ships. The retreat was slow-moving, however. The wind had still not returned to aid them. The massive Lestragonians hurled boulders at the fleeing Ithacans. One by one, Odysseus watched as the rocks slammed into his men's ships, destroying the boats and sending the men to their deaths. By the time it was over, all but one of the ships had been destroyed. Distraught and scarred by the loss of their countrymen, they sailed on, eventually reaching Iia, which was known to be the home of Circe, the immortal witch. In their weariness, they ignored the dangers Circe might have posed, and they laid out on the beach and ate the local fruits, resting for two full days. Only then did they realize they were being watched, for Circe the dreaded witch, had plans for them. Next, Odysseus contends with the witch Circe and uncovers the secret to finally making his way home. Now, back to the Odyssey. After a series of misadventures that had destroyed all but one of his ships, Odysseus and his few surviving men had camped out on the island of the witch Circe. The men had learned from their past encounters with hostile locals. Even as they began to look for food, they stayed vigilant of watchful eyes. For two days, they waited on this shore for any sign of life on the island. There was none. And so, on the third day, Odysseus sent a small group into the woods to scout. The men soon became captivated by the sound of a woman singing from somewhere in the heart of the forest. They followed the sound until they came upon her, Circe in all her beauty, singing a somber melody while an audience of wolves, lions, and other predators watched. They stayed on their guard as they waited for one of the animals to attack. No attack came, and the men realized that each animal seemed docile, domesticated even. Circe had cast a spell on the creatures, 
and they served her. Who's out there? Come on. I won't hurt you. The men emerged from the woods into the clearing. Circe disarmed them with her smile as she approached the door to her cottage and opened it to reveal a table stocked with food. You look hungry. Come, join me. The men forgot all thoughts of caution as they rushed inside. After all they had gone through, all they had suffered, they still had not learned how to use their minds rather than their stomachs to make decisions. None saw Circe smile as she shut the door behind them. The next day, Odysseus grew concerned for his missing men. He grabbed his sword and his bow and ventured into the woods. He quickly picked up their trail and made his way towards Circe's hut, stopping only when a stag burst forth from behind a tree and startled him. Odysseus quickly realized he was being followed. His hand reached for his sword as he turned to find himself face to face with Hermes, the messenger god. Though he was not as fervent about Odysseus as Athena, Hermes still liked the man, and more, he cared little for Circe. Hermes came down from Mount Olympus to offer aid. Hermes warned Odysseus about the scores of men who had entered Circe's cottage and were never seen again. He presented Odysseus with an herb, moly, and commanded him to eat it, for the plant would protect the hero from Circe's magic. Odysseus then made his way to the clearing where he found Circe alone by her cabin. Where are my men? They are resting inside, for I supplied them with a feast. They ate until their stomachs nearly burst. Are they sleeping? I don't hear their voices. <laughs> you have nothing to worry about. Come, let me show you. Circe led Odysseus inside, where a gruesome sight awaited him. These swine? Why, you've turned my men into pigs! And now the same fate shall befall you! Circe touched Odysseus as she uttered a spell, but nothing happened. The moly he'd eaten had done its job and protected him from her influence. He drew his sword and made a step to cut Circe down, but she held up her hands, pleading. If you kill me, your men will remain pigs for the rest of their days. Odysseus lowered his blade, noting the truth in her words. Whatever cause you have for doing this to my men, know that it is not our intent to harm you. We have suffered much at the hands of the Cyclops, and the giants, and the winds themselves. And so we were too weak to see the danger in eating the food of a witch until it was too late. Circe was moved by Odysseus's words, and with his help, she concocted a potion that turned all of the men back to humans. They sat for another feast, a real feast, and exchanged stories— Circe told the tale of how she'd been banished to live in solitude on the island by her father, the sun god Helios. She recounted the first time that men came to her shores, how she'd been so happy to converse with people that she'd let her guard down. 
They assaulted her and stole from her, and so she transformed them into pigs to better reflect their true nature. From that day on, all men who set foot on her island were turned into swine. Odysseus told Circe the story of how they had been waylaid on their journey home from Troy. She was moved by their stories of suffering and opened her house to them, offering them beds, food, wine, and baths to soothe their ales. The men got comfortable, even more so after Odysseus found himself unable to resist Circe's charms. Odysseus had not known the comfort of a woman in over a decade, and the hero and the witch soon became lovers. His men were well provided for, and he had a place where he could finally rest. This made leaving quite difficult, as Odysseus knew that there was still a long, hard journey ahead. And so he and his men stayed on the island for a full year. It was a rare period of extended peace for the Ithacans, but after those twelve months had passed, the men gathered round Odysseus and urged him that it was time to move on. And so, with a heavy heart, Odysseus went to his lover. Circe, I have to leave. I know. I have known it for a while now, and I've relished every extra moment I get with you. I cannot delay it any longer. Though we have found a safe haven here, my men long for home. We must finally make our return to Ithaca. It will not be easy. For though you have stayed here for a long time, Poseidon has not forgotten how you blinded and dishonored his son, the Cyclops. He will make your travels difficult. Surely a goddess like you has some idea of how we can get home. Circe told Odysseus that if he truly wanted to make it home, he would need to travel all the way to the underworld and seek the advice of the spirit of the blind prophet Tiresias. Odysseus contemplated Circe's words as he slept one final night in her bed. The men were in good spirits the next day as they readied the ship to depart. They all thought Circe had given Odysseus guidance on how to return home. Odysseus felt regret as he told them the truth. They weren't headed for Ithaca. Not yet. First, on Circe's advice, they would be going to the underworld. This broke their spirits, and when they resumed their work, they kept their heads down and wept silently. When they were finally ready to go, Odysseus noticed something. We're not all here. Where is Elpiner? I haven't seen him. Honestly, I lost track of most of your men. He was the youngest of us. The lad barely has a beard, and yet he survived the Trojan War and all of the trials that we have faced thus far on our journey. I will look for him. If he is still on the island, I'll find him. Good. We don't have time to stick around. And so they set off, one man short. Following Circe's instructions, Odysseus and his men sailed across the open ocean until they came upon Oceanus, the great stream that separated the world of the living from the dead. They beached the ship on a small islet, and then Odysseus made sacrifices to Hades until 
at long last, the spirits of the dead emerged from the underworld to speak with him. He pushed them all aside until, eventually, he found himself face to face with Tiresias, the blind prophet. Odysseus, you have traveled far to get here, but I fear you have a long way yet to go before you once again know the comfort of home. Circe spoke the truth. You have angered Poseidon, and he has deemed that you will wander the earth rather than return to Ithaca. I do not know how to reconcile with Poseidon. What must I do to return home? Do not speak of this to your fellows, but only you will survive to return to Ithaca. You will rescue your wife from the suitors that plague her, and even then you will journey out once more on a mission to appease Poseidon. Then, and only then, will you know your way home. Odysseus kept his dread at the news to himself. He tried to look on the bright side, the fact that, at the very least, he would survive the journey home. Thank you, wise spirit. You cannot leave yet. There are others who wish to speak with you. Odysseus became more aware of the spirits that surrounded him. He saw the ghosts of Agamemnon, Achilles, Ajax, and other heroes he knew from the war. Heracles was there, and the hunter Orion, and King Minos and other characters from Greece's great history. And finally... Elpiner! Is that you? Indeed, Elpiner, Odysseus's missing man, was there among the dead. He wept as he told Odysseus his story. On the last night as Circe's guests, he'd gotten drunk and climbed up on the roof to sleep under the stars. He fell off the roof and broke his neck. The poor lad begged Odysseus to return to Iia and give him a proper burial. Before Odysseus could respond, he found himself flanked by more and more spirits. They all wanted to make requests, too. They begged for news of their loved ones who still lived. They demanded that Odysseus take messages to their families. Odysseus finally became overwhelmed and fled back to his ship. On his orders, the Ithacans returned to Circe's island. You've returned. Did the underworld give you what you sought? Yes. And no. I fear that I have a long way yet to go. But there is something we must do first. They found Elpiner's body beneath the bushes by the cottage. They buried the poor man that night. And then Odysseus spent one more night in Circe's bed. There are things I need to warn you about before you go. I fear your path home will not be easy. Hardly any of the journey has been easy. Why should what awaits us be any different? Your journey will take you past the land of the Sirens. Yes, I know. And Scylla, the six-headed sea beast? Of course. Not to mention Charybdis, the endless whirlpool. We have come too far to turn back now. All of our trials will be worth it when we make it home. I have no doubt that you will be successful, but I feel a deep foreboding when it comes to the fate of your men. I will protect them as best as I can. I know. You are too good a man. The next day, 
Odysseus and the Ithacans set out from Circe's island for the final time. Everything that Circe warned of came to pass. They sailed past the island of the Sirens, where Odysseus made his men stuff their ears with wax so they would not be transfixed by their song. He had himself bound to the mast of the ship so that he could listen to their legendary and deadly music. They then passed the underwater lair of the six-headed sea monster, Scylla. They fended the creature off by staying close to a cliff's edge where it could not reach them. But as they made their final stretch past Scylla's domain, the creature lashed out and devoured six men from Odysseus's crew. They pressed onward, burying the grief of losing their comrades as they steered the boat out of Scylla's lair. And just beyond that, they passed the whirlpool, Charybdis, barely escaping its pull with their lives. Odysseus grieved the loss of his men, but knew that there was little he could do. They sailed on, leaving the threats behind. Odysseus felt that finally they had passed all the threats the world had to offer and that nothing was left to hold them back. They docked on Thrinacia, the island that Helios, the sun god, had claimed for his sacred cattle. The men had learned by now from their past misadventures to keep to themselves and not trust anything on the island that might tempt them. It was good advice, for though the cattle they found looked delicious, they were under the protection of Helios. Odysseus slept, weary from the stress of the sirens and Scylla. While he slept, his second-in-command, Eurylochus, urged the rest of the men to defy their king's order. The men needed little urging to do so. They were hungry, and they had already suffered much for Odysseus. Why shouldn't they get to enjoy themselves now and again? When Odysseus woke up, it was to the intoxicating smells of cooking beef. What have you done? Odysseus didn't have time to lambast his men for once again allowing their stomachs to get the better of them. They all rushed to the ship, hoping they could escape before Helios found out. When Helios learned that his beloved cattle were dead, he cried out to Zeus to punish those responsible. And once again, Zeus lashed out at the Ithacans for their foolish cruelty. He sent a storm down at them that shook them this way and that, ripping the ship to planks and sending all of the men but Odysseus to the depths. Odysseus, the last man out of a platoon of Ithacans that had once been twelve ships strong, woke to find... Myself on Calypso's Isle, and I think you know the rest of the story, my dear Phaeacians. And so Odysseus finished his story. Back in Scoria, his hosts were openly weeping at his account of the trials and losses he had faced on his return journey from Troy. Odysseus stood, stretching his legs, and everyone in the hall burst out in applause for a tale well told. I am glad that everything I went through had some value, and that 
it at least makes for a good story. The moon has passed over the sky, and dawn approaches. I have reached the end of my story, for now, and I would like to rest. Oriti and Alcinous were in agreement. The crowd in the hall dispersed, with everyone whispering about the fantastic story of Odysseus. And that night, Odysseus lay awake in bed, weeping openly at the memory of all he had lost and all he still had yet to lose. He had done his best to win over the hearts and minds of the Phaeacians. Now he prayed that they give him a ship and supplies so that he could finally go home. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode continuing the story of Odysseus. If you enjoy Mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every other Saturday, we dive into another dark, classic tale. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Mythology in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another epic tale. Mythology was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Colin McLaughlin. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Jerry Courtney Austin, Heston Mosier, Samantha Moore, Steve Pinto, Manib Roman, and Brett Schneider. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.